Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. You might remember way back towards the beginning of the year, we, Royal We, the ABA We, were announcing that we were hiring for two positions, one to handle our events and travel program, which is slowly cranking back into form, though obviously not as fast as we thought it might earlier in the year. Thank you, Delta Varian. And one to oversee the ABA's Young Birder programs, that being the camps, the Young Birder of the Year mentoring program, Sparkbird Project. And we, we have filled those positions, and I'm, I'm excited to be able to announce that here. Uh, into the first position, we welcome Katinka Doman from Belgium via Honduras. You might have known her as part of the team at Beaks and Peaks, an ecotourism business based in Honduras. But we're excited to have her in-house in the ABA now. Her experience building and undertaking birding and nature experiences is, is well known. It's great to have someone with, our, with her background doing all that for us. If you are interested in traveling with Katinka and ABA staff and friends, please check out our travel schedule, which hopefully we can ramp up in a post-Delta world. That is at aba.org slash travel. We will continue to build that out shortly. I know Katinka has some plans that should appeal to everyone in the ABA and birding community. So not just those big international trips, but some other stuff too that everyone should be able to take advantage of and enjoy. And into that Young Birder program seat comes Laura Garrard. For the last five years, she was education director at Black Swamp Bird Observatory. You know how great that organization is. So it's a a bit of a coup that we got her. Uh, No hard feelings from BSBO, obviously. But, um, you know, we're really excited to have someone who has dedicated so much of their life to nature education, environmental education, and to have a single person in charge of stuff that has been, you know, something of a committee for the last couple of years. That is obviously Fantastic. Uh, It'll really bring our Young Birder programs to the next level. We'll be launching the Young Birder of the Year program shortly. Keep an eye out for an announcement on that very soon. So welcome new ABA staffers. I hope that you're out there listening, have the opportunity soon to meet them and welcome them yourself. Uh, This is an encore episode of the American Birding Podcast. This week, John is out of town. I had one planned for September anyway. So I'm taking this opportunity to bring back... Uh, a great show that we did in our second year, the end of the program, we have Ted Floyd talking about one of his favorite birds, the bush tit. But first, I have an amazing interview with one J.B. Brumfeld, the captain of Cuyahoga County, the virtuoso of birding northern Ohio, the marquee of Wendy Parkey. They are joined by my ABA colleague, Greg Neese talk about urban birding, the love of local parks. It is fun. No rare birds this week. I'll catch you up next time. But here's Greg and JB. Joining me now from Cleveland is Jen Brumfield, naturalist at the uh, Cleveland Metro Parks, an artist. Her 
artwork has graced the cover of Birding Magazine, and I'm pretty sure been used inside a couple of times. Hey, Jen, are you there? I am here, Greg. <laughs> so good I'm to, here. So good to talk to you. <laughs> you as well. Migration is kicking up, and I want to talk to you about urban birding, which, you know, you and I both are inner city kids. Yes. And bird city parks, lakefront parks. So I want to pick your brain and talk to you about urban birding a bit. I love it. I love it. uh, You you are right in downtown Cleveland, right? Yeah. Yeah. Immediately on the west side. So I can jump on the shoreway and and be downtown in less than a minute and a half. And you've got little, little parks. Small parks, yeah. The uh, one of our best parks. It sounds larger than it is. It's twenty-two acres, but the actual woodlot that draws in all the the passerins is is smaller. It's only a couple acres large. So we're not working with you're talking about Wendy Wendy Park, yeah, glorious Wendy Park. So Wendy Wendy Park is is one of those places I think that's that's kind of famous in in city city park lore as as being a a real migrant trap and experiencing close to fallout conditions on a somewhat regular basis yeah all right so you've done you've done now two cuyahoga county big years yeah actually three three in 2012 i set out for the first big county year i I actually i meant to i planned it Uh, after 2011 i said i'm gonna i'm gonna do this after 2012, I couldn't stop. So in 2013, I picked up and did another big year right after two back to back. It was brutal. And, you know, the things in my life at that time allowed me to do it. Right now, I remember I remember this. We're dancing all over the place, but that's just the way it's going to. That's the way it's going to go, because that's the way conversation with you and me always is. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I remember. And I think it was that 2013 effort where you did something that just kind of blew my mind. The only place in the county to get shorebirds is the airport. And the airport, yeah. the airport is almost unbirdable. So you got yourself a job as a lawnmower at the airport so you could be no, out there. No, I wish I could oh, have. I you wish did. No, Weren't you out there? I, was, I remember this. No, I remember I this. Was, no, I was saying that I should. And I actually looked up to see what the possibilities of working a part-time job were to be. No, I so never how did moved you, So how did you get those shorebirds out there? I, rem- well, I remember so that. So this is the part that just turns a, a birding lifestyle to manic. Um, <laughs> there is a, a location, a, a road that parallels the airport. And uh, from that road, there's a small hill alongside the road. And this hill is just big enough to where you can see up and over the fence of the airport and use spotting scope to scan out. Now this is at least, it's at least four football fields away, but you can scan out and watch shorebirds flushing up out of the impounds and then dropping down in. So there are impounds on the north end. It's called Burke Lakefront Airport. And there's impounds out there with beautiful mudflats. And like you said, no access. So here I am, a couple football fields away, um, standing on top of a hill alongside the main shoreway road, uh, I-90, coming out of Cleveland. On a small bump uphill with my spotting scope, scanning to see 
shorebirds dropping in and out of these impounds. And that would only happen when peregrines would flush them or we had good wind days uh, where they would be moving a little bit. So the plane, the planes wouldn't flush them? Planes would sometimes flush them, sometimes, but actually very rarely. It usually took a peregrine. So I'd wait for a peregrine to make a run through. <laughs> uh, sometimes they'd flush up for uh, kestrels or red-tailed hawk. And uh, I had approximately at any given time between six and 20 seconds to identify these shorebirds in flight <laughs> at several football fields away through my spotting scope. So the, the routine would be scan, scan, scan. And if I picked up on a line of shorebirds in flight, I had my scope right there and I'd grip on the group of birds in flight through my spotting scope. And of course, at that distance, you got to be real careful. Yeah. You know, there I am, you know, I, there's been a couple birds that I've seen in Cuyahoga County that I still have not counted fully because I wasn't a hundred percent or what I like to call five, 500%. Sure. Which you should do. Oh, absolutely. We won't, we won't talk about that slady back gull today. Oh Actually, we my probably God. Will. We probably should. <laughs> we each have that, one of those. A, that, that's a 99.9% .9 bird right there that I had to let go. Yeah. I could have, I probably could have, you know, leaned towards it, but I'm going to wait for one that is closer and I can just bang out photos yeah. and just, just nail it. Yeah. So yeah, Burke shorebirding, you know, added an additional 30 species, That's that's which is phenomenal. just, oh, madness. Red knots landing on the runway, <laughs> American golden plovers running around, just, oof. That's awesome. You are also, you know, hitting the parks like Wendy Park very hard. Yes. And paying very close attention to the weather and when the birds might drop out, especially during spring migration, which is really yep. spring migration is really when weather affects the birds the most. They're in a, yeah, they're in a hurry. They're moving fast. You get the right conditions. You get birds piled up in the fall. They just kind of tend to wander through and linger or not and yep. one of the stories i remember i think it was from that that first big year but it was one of the two was the connecticut warbler where you were watching yeah. you were watching a brush pile every day during the proper time in may and just waiting for a connecticut warbler to show up in this perfect brush pile and yep what happened? <laughs> oh, it was just unbelievable. So my my best friend actually accompanied me uh, this day, and I had been sending him photos. I mean, it just was classic. You know, there's raspberry and pine needles underneath from white pines growing over top, and uh, these beautiful logs. So we hit this spot. It was called Elmwood Park. You know, we're staring at this spot, and we popped popped off a couple of Connecticut warbler songs just I think maybe twice. And, you know, we stood there watching. Of course, we're looking at other birds around. And, and we started to move on to the next spot. And we took a couple steps back towards a car and I heard a Connecticut warbler. And I turned back to my friend and, you know, things I can't say here. And I said, <laughs> you know, you, you got to be kidding me, man. You can't, you know, you can't do that to me. Don't even, you know, you're playing that from your pocket. You're messing with right. me and he's, you know, yelling back, no, 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 I'm not playing it from my pocket. And I'm like, don't, don't do this. Not, no, I'm, I'm in a big year. You got to be serious with me. You're, you're killing me right now. And he's yelling back at me. It's not me. It is not me. 
I had him pull out his phone and show me. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Even though he's my best bud, you know, you got you to gotta watch. Yeah. And sure enough, a Connecticut warbler started popping off a song from that brush pile. And we were able to see it. Yeah, you know, just slinking through the shadows, sure. but just doing that that awesome song that it does from the dark corners of brush piles. It, oh, it was so great. You know, just adrenaline just starts pumping. I probably used up so much adrenaline that year. <laughs> that leads me to the importance of of microhabitats in park city park birding yeah. because yep. city parks are mostly manicured. The habitat is. I mean, it's it's planted trees. It's it's little fragments of this, little fragments of that. You know, back in the back in the old Montrose days, before it became a bird sanctuary, the hill up on the top where the magic hedge is had a broken a broken water pipe. Oh wow! It was a water feature that attracted all kinds of things, and it was out in the open. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so birds would come flying from the hedge down to get some water and then fly back up to the hedge. Uh, And then, of course, it was kind of swampy, and this was always the best place to look for LeConte Sparrow. Yeah. During spring migration was this little wet spot on top of this hill. And I'm sure you've got got places in Cleveland that are just like that, where it's this this tiny little piece of habitat where every year, you know, this is where I'm going to find my Lincoln Sparrow. This is where I'm going to find my my Connecticut Warbler. Yeah. And and just like you said, I mean, almost like clockwork, you know, those birds, albeit rare and uncommon, they show up in those spots. It's pretty mind blowing. I mean, even though I've seen it happen, you know, multiple times, so many folks have seen it happen. If they're birding those urban spots, you know, there's a there's one coniferous tree, a conifer mm-hmm. in Erie Street Cemetery, which is in downtown Cleveland. And every single year that has sawwood owl pellets mm-hmm. at the base of it or long eared owl pellets or, you know, that is where a certain species of warbler, pine warbler likes to hang out. There's a, a grassier area in the cemetery. And I mean, this cemetery is only a block long. It's very small. And uh, there's a certain patch that has ever so slightly taller grass. I mean, I'm talking maybe two inches because they don't mow it as frequently. Mm-hmm. And that is where we get grasshopper sparrow mm-hmm. every single year in this tiny little patch of ever so slightly taller grass. That and clay colored. And that that really is the key to to hardcore urban birding is knowing where these little spots are. And, you know, you mentioned the owls uh, on the Chicago lakefront, which, uh, you know, we have just a boatload of parks. The whole lakefront is a giant park, but it's it's very urban and it's it's very busy. There's there's thousands, thousands of people in all kinds of weather, rollerblading, biking, walking, dogs, everything you can imagine up and down the Chicago lakefront. But in the middle of all this, there's three pine trees that we're not allowed to disclose the location of. <laughs> That's in, awesome. In the most, one of the most congested places on the lakefront, yeah. there's these three pine trees right off the main walkway. And every winter, every fall, there are long-eared owls in these three pine trees. Yeah, it's amazing. And thousands of people walk right past them. Sure. And the owls just kind of hunker up in there and they don't move. And same thing, you know, with the sparrows you were talking about, one of the one of the things and I'm sure you do the same in the spring, especially look for patches where the lawnmowers missed 
and the yes, and the exactly. dandelions the dandelions go to seed. <laughs> yeah. So there's these little turns, you know, that the lawnmower can't make the turn or whatever, but they miss it every year. Yep. And the grass gets a little taller and the dandelions yep. go to seed and that's where you find your clay-colored sparrow. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, there yes, there is a strategy to it, but you know, also folks need to latch on to the idea that this is not rocket science. You know, we get so often folks will say, how do you find these birds? How do you find these birds? You know, and sure, it's being in tune with weather. It's watching radar. It is knowing your local parks like the back of your hand. I mean, it's knowing every single intricate little corner and knowing the birds that favor those habitats. But you put yourself out there and, you know, you're going to find those things, too. It's learning your parks. It's it's learning where the trees are that the birds like, you know, like the the, the trees that these owls return to year after year, yeah. the patches that the sparrows return to. And we're talking, you know, when we say patches, we're talking about like half the size of a of a normal city home lot, you know, like, sure. Like 35 feet by 45, 50 feet. Oh yeah. <laughs> We're talking. Yeah. Really. Oh, and some of, I mean, some of these patches can be as big as your kitchen table. Exactly. I mean, they can be a, they can be a small little wet spot that tends to hold slightly, you know, more water. Uh, it's more saturated than another part of that, you know, that tiny little part. Um, so what's on tap for this spring? Rarity hunting, always, Greg, or seeking, I should say. What's on your radar? This year, I am uh, not doing a big year, and I am focusing on pure documentation of pasturing flights along the lakefront, some of the lakefront parks, Mm -hmm. raptors moving along the lakefronts, just trying to rack up numbers of birds using certain key green spaces in urban yeah. areas. Also working with Lights Out Cleveland, which is an exhausting thing that's going downtown to downtown Cleveland every morning, walking the streets and recording dead and injured birds that have struck windows Yeah, to try to push forward the Lights Out movement in Cleveland. And of course, just rarity seeking overall. I mean, there's, you know, out of the just incredible number of birds I've personally seen in Cuyahoga County, there are some that are just glaring at me. You know, I mean, it's, I've got great cormorant. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> oh, but don't have blue grosbeak, which actually nests in the state. So there are, you know, and there's always those birds that, those nemesis birds that get you. You know, I don't have worm-eating warbler yet, but yet have Kirtland's warbler. Right. So, you know, just birding just keeps you going. I mean, there's always something to be you know, searching for. That is true. I mean, it's 40, 45 years doing this and still there's things that, that you still, it, you never stop learning. Yeah. There's always a challenge that you can make for yourself. And, and I think urban birding challenges are really awesome. We just, I just kind of got into the whole five mile radius thing. And that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, you pick a, oh, you pick a circle, a blast. you draw a circle five miles from your house and you yep. see how many species of birds you can find in the five mile circle from your house. More, more people should be doing it. Absolutely. You talk about uh, accessibility that just pushes accessibility for more people to be involved culturally, racially, folks that have a harder time getting around to different locations. 
uh, folks that you know don't have the means to spend a lot of money on fuel, people that want to bike. You know, mm-hmm. Every single aspect urban birding hits on in that it is something you can do walking out of your door or going to work or on a lunch break if you work downtown. It seems that the, the good word of, of birding passes quickly that way. People, you know, they look at you, of course, oddly sometimes at first, but then, oh, they so willingly latch on, you know, and are fascinated by what you're doing. Yeah. And, and a lot of folks get recruited to the hobby that way, and they find that they can carry their little pair of binoculars around and their coffee and follow along with good conversation, see some warblers, and have a great day. Absolutely. You said, have a great day. Have you ever done a single park or string of parks big day? In the, you know, in the urban setting? Not yet. That is something that I want to do uh, where I set out. Yeah, I want to do it for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I can't say fully yes that I have not done that so far is that I have not done the full 12 or 24 hours. But I did hit, uh, this was two years ago, Wendy Park for 45 minutes and had 90 species of birds. That's that's pretty phenomenal. In 45 minutes. It was one of the single most exhausting and overwhelming and stunning points in birding that I have ever seen. All the passerines were there. Uh, Raptors were migrating overhead and water birds were still lingering. Uh, So there was good duck and gull diversity to boot. Absolutely. You know, that that moment right there made me think, oh, my goodness. You know, if I, I had to go to work after that 45 minutes, if I would have stuck it out, if I would have immediately turned that into, a, you know, a, a, the biggest day I right. could, uh, who knows what that total would have racked up to be. Yeah, we picked a couple friends of mine and I picked a day a few years ago in May. We did a big day in Lincoln Park in Chicago, which admittedly is a pretty big park. Sure. But it's still a single city park. Absolutely. And uh, we racked up, I think, 116 species. Oh, my gosh. That day. And the, the most frustrating part of it was we picked a day during uh, one. The day that we picked had a Cubs game, a Cubs afternoon game. And we had to go between two parts of the park where we had to drive three quarters of a mile from one parking lot to another. Oh no. But we had to get on Lakeshore drive to go from parking lot A yeah. to parking lot B three quarters of a mile. We got stuck on Lakeshore drive for over an hour to go 45 minutes. Oh my and that, God. And that is one of the, that is one of the, uh, one of the things to take into consideration with urban birding. It's Absolutely. Often, often riding a bicycle or just walking is the better yeah. way to go or jumping on the bus. Oh, yeah. I mean, even thinking about, you know, the amount of distractions, even that Wendy Park is one of the loudest places to birdwatch I have ever been. There's a a train track that runs right through it. Mm -hmm. All planes that come into Cleveland Hopkins Airport circle out over Lake Erie and come directly in overhead Wendy Park as well as planes coming in and out of the local airport, Burke Lakefront Airport. And there's a marina there, and you can hear, you know, there's massive, massive boats coming down the Cuyahoga River right there. I mean, it can be just madness, you know, not to mention the helicopters that are filming rush hour traffic. (laughs) 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it just stunning, you know. And here you're trying to sort through, and you've got all this. I mean, it is the epitome. You know, people having, uh, you know, cooking out, grilling, beach volleyball while you're looking at warblers. I mean, just blasting rap music. You just reminded me of a time my friend Andy and I were birding in uh, on the Mississippi River, far from from any urban area, but in a place with just a lot of a lot of motor noise, trains and helicopters. And, and he stood there and just yeah. wailed at the sky. He screamed, I hate internal combustion engines. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, it has been, uh, as always, it has been a pleasure. I hope to see you in person soon. Oh, Greg, we could talk for hours. Yeah, we'll absolute, get back absolutely. on and do part two. I got to, I got to, I got to tell you about, you know, at this same park, a Henslow sparrow that was walking around in the mowed lawn with Starling. So there's, and a Western tanager that flew by when there were only five species of birds. I remember birds the Western, I remember the, the Western tanager. Oh. I, I remember that. But we got to wrap this up. All right, let's do it. I am looking forward to part two. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I heard them before I saw them. In my experience with the species, it's almost always that way. Their calls were light and lisping and incessant. They were definitely going off on something or somebody. The birds were well within the foliage of a dense pinion pine, and I might have overlooked them altogether, were it not for the fact that they were constantly in motion, every individual in the flock. I didn't really see the birds themselves so much as their movements. It seemed as if the tree itself were shimmering, fluttering, on the verge of bursting into flame. A bird flew out of the tree, then another, and another, more than twenty birds in total. They flew across the way to a Rocky Mountain juniper in single file. That's the way they do it, one bird at a time. The behavior is highly distinctive. As the birds traversed the clearing between the trees, I was struck by how absolutely tiny they were. Really, not much bigger than a large dragonfly. Picture a cotton ball with a toothpick for a tail. They have to be one of my all-time favorite birds. Bush tits. It's a funny name. Be careful with your internet search. The scientific name is worth briefly pondering as well. The specific epithet, minimus, means least or tiniest. These birds make chickadees look positively ginormous. The generic name, Saltraparis, means lute-playing or psalm-singing titmouse. Hey, I love the way bush tits sound, but the dry chatter of the species is anything but lute-like. Once again, a completely ludicrous name conferred by a dead European with zero qualifications to name our American birds. If I could change one thing about ornithology, it would be to abolish the rigid, inflexible, dogmatic, quasi-religious, totally Aristotelian, quote-unquote, rules of zoological nomenclature. But I digress. I love bush tits for so many reasons. They're sociable, they're cheery, they're always doing things, always going places. Bush tits never sit still. Backyard feeders are defenseless against these suet piranhas, as I've heard them called. By the way, bush tits are not cute. The adult females in particular, with their staring yellow eyes, are positively fearsome, about as cute as a hornet. Their nests are insane. Picture minute bull's dirty white tube sock hanging from a tree and you have the right idea. The bush tit's social system is highly advanced. Basically, it takes a village. The species' vocalizations, although emphatically not lute-like, are complex and varied. 
I said bush tits are always doing things, always going places, and that gets at something about their population biology. The species is undergoing a rapid range expansion likely mediated by climate change. Everything about the species fascinates me. The physicist Brian Greene, in his book Fabric of the Cosmos, delights in the truth that this universe of ours is stranger and more wondrous than we ever knew, with its black holes and gravitational waves, with its dark matter and dark energy. It's the same way for me with birds like bush tits. You could go through life in my Colorado neighborhood and never know the bush tit. No matter, they're there, doing their thing, buzzing about the suburban plantings, tending their crazy nests, raiding suet feeders, always twittering and chittering, forever cheery and sociable, doing all those things and more, doing their part in the fabric of the cosmos. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support us, you can join the ABA. You do get our great magazines. You do get discounts to our partners. And you do get travel opportunities with the ABA staff and friends. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. If you've already done all that, you can always leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't claim to know what weird metrics that Apple Podcasts uses, but I'm told that ratings and reviews do help grow the audience for the show. Every little bit helps. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon, better known around here as the White Crown Delania of Media Pennsylvania, by which we mean he mostly migrates backwards and has a little bit of white hidden on his crown. It happens to all of us. Technical production is by John Lowry, known as the Little Stint of Central Michigan, by which we mean we're pleasantly surprised, but a little confused when he shows up anywhere. Additional help comes from Greg Neeson, David Hartley, the Sawwet Owls of HTMLs which must be a web development thing because I, I have no idea what that means. You can find us online at aba.org or on social media as American Birding Association or ABA. Do make sure it's the right ABA. Look, I cannot deny that I've been called the great Aka bird talk. Though it does concern me that the comparison is extinct. Questions, comments, corrections, and come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.